Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're talking to Yuval, who is the managing partner at Team 8 in Israel. And we're going to find out, well, first of all, I'm quite curious why Inc. Magazine called him a godfather of Israeli fintech. But we're going to find out what he thinks are the critical success factors when you're trying to consider a new career and you would like to work for a fintech. What's the best way to find out who is the right fit for you? But of course, we're going to find out more about how Team 8 works with the startups, how do they think about deal sourcing and uh, investing and what are their success stories as well. So welcome, Yuval. How are you today? Thank you very much, uh, Rui, for uh, inviting me. I'm very good. It's Israel. It's sunny. It's beautiful. I love it. Good stuff. As I said, I've seen your article in the Inc. magazine and they called you a godfather of Israeli fintech. So how did that happen? I guess everybody needs a nickname. But in short, the brief story is that I started two uh, fintech companies before fintech was a phrase. And both of them made it all the way to NASDAQ. So I guess I'm one of the founders who lucky enough to go through the whole process from beginning to IPO and, and be and celebrating it in Times Square. I guess that's the source. Fantastic. So you are managing partner at Team 8 Fintech, right? So what is your firm and what is your mandate within uh, Team 8? I can share why I joined Team 8, but I don't think it's only specific for Team 8. I think it's specific for any early stage or pre-seed or infancy uh, phase. And how do you help people who want to be entrepreneurs or want to join companies in an early stage to improve the chances of success? And, and that's a huge issue. Like, how do you choose the space? How do you choose the product? How do you choose the, the initial partners? How do you choose the, fund, the funding partners? Like, those are critical questions, and I think... A lot can be done, and that's what teammate is doing also. A lot can be done to improve the chances of success. And it, it's a really important point, right? Because most companies, most startups will fail. And the biggest question, the, uh, the biggest holes in the bucket are, how can you prevent from companies who shouldn't start from the get-go, they shouldn't start there anyways, how do you prevent them from doing so many mistakes and, and not even starting? Or how do you help companies that have a chance to not make fatal mistakes at the beginning. And, and, and that's not uh, random. Those are, there's a lot of logic and knowledge in preventing companies from making those mistakes. And, and I think that's where teammate is, is there, is to improve the chances of a company to succeed, improve the chances of the, the first team, improve the, the odds and of finding customers and finding the right funds, etc. So when we talk about life cycle or stages of the companies, you said you focus on quite early. So... Is that seed, pre-seed, uh, Series A, or what is your sweet spot? What is teammate doing initially is finding people who want to start companies, work with them to refine and identify the niche in the market. Even if they come with ideas, there's a lot of work to be done to identify the market and define the need. Helps the company to find the first customers, fund the company significantly. So there's a combination of talent, knowledge, education, research, thinking, and money. 
Yeah, and then the company have a better chance to start. And then once the company starts, the company takes a dynamic of its own. We take as a position of shareholders or uh, investors. And so how do you find these teams and those investable ideas? Is that the outbound, inbound, algos, um, network, traditional way, or a combination of all of the above? It's a combination, but I would say initially, so there's specific markets that we focus. So for example, I focus on payments and e-commerce. And I only do payments and e-commerce. It's big by itself, but I don't deviate from this to anything else but e-commerce and payments. And in, in that space, if we see a new ideas, if we see an opportunity, we learn it. We spend a lot of time learning competition, learning what's going on, what are the trends, what are the holes. I think the art is to find cracks in the existing infrastructure that you, you think you can come up with a new product that's going to have enough merits to be able to be on its own for a little bit, and then you can expand from there. So we research those markets. That's kind of one angle. The second angle is we meet people who want to be entrepreneurs all the time. And sometimes people don't know that they want to be entrepreneurs. Like they think they want to be, but they're not sure. They're not sure what it means. Am I one? Do I have it? Do I don't have it? So we actually help them almost psychologically to go through the process and define whether it's for them or not. And we're very easy of saying it's not for you. But we're also very supportive if we think it's it's right. We're not they said that they are welcome to do anything they want anywhere else, but at least we, we we give them some kind of a mirror and a feedback. So that's so we have the markets, we have the people, and then together with people and the markets, we look at certain niches and we start to define products. Uh, and then we off we go and we start a company. It's a beautiful, fun. I have probably one of the best jobs in the world. Of course you do. But geographically, what are we talking about? Are you based in Israel? Are you looking at payments and e-commerce all around the world or are you focusing on some parts of the world? So I think e-commerce is by definition global from day one. The minute you go e-commerce, you're global. There's no way to go around it. There's no, maybe China or US have some domestic markets. But so we look at, for example, if you look at e-commerce, the merchant, the seller can be Germany, can be in Switzerland, can be in Tel Aviv, can be in Romania or whatever. there's many places, but the, the products are going to be bought in China and be sold in the US or sold in Japan. So I guess it's, it's international by definition. We do have offices in, in, in Israel and in New York. So the tendency is to find people in Tel Aviv or in New York, but we're very welcome to work with entrepreneurs globally. It's not a, it's not a limitation at all. All right. Understood. And so you're focusing on very early stage, end of the spectrum. And mm. some people say at that time, it is a lot more about the theme than the idea. Some people think, okay, if I back a serial entrepreneur and their team, then that's all right. They're going to figure out whatever the problem we are talking about. So is that how you think about it or not? I guess if you can say, listen, I'm going to be behind Elon Musk and uh, I'm going to support him and that's my trick, then it's a cheap trick because you just be, you hide behind other people's talent. And I don't think that's our ticket. And there are many serial entrepreneurs doesn't necessarily need us. The question is who's going to be the next entrepreneur for the first time who have it. And you have a lot of talent, tremendous amount of talent of people who want to succeed, who have the drive. And they need some some support, some kind of education curve. So those are the more people that we tend to look for, is to save them from PayPal or from other corporation or from Credit Suisse and give them a chance to, to go ahead and, and fulfill the dreams with the drive and relentlessness. All right. Being in a VC also means sometimes you have to say no. So you say, all right, you look at people and uh, when you see a uh, potential, you support them. 
And uh, do you also face situations where you say, you know what, entrepreneurship is not for you? We often tell people, you're not the Kaiser and the leader or the charismatic person who may actually go ahead and, and close deals and find the investors. But we think that you can be amazing number two or number three or number five. Mm-hmm. And uh, go ahead and find you another partner or go ahead and if you bring a team, we'll support you. So it's the giving the reflection of what we think. It doesn't mean that we write, but uh, we typically do it in a positive way. If you find another, you know, co-founders, we will definitely support you. And then we help them find, and then sometimes we match. But I think your point is very valid. If you want to be honest with people, you want to save them the agony. If it's not for them, then, you know, there's no point of wasting so much energy and, and pain. So you're focusing on early stage, you find the people, you put maybe the team together. By the way, maybe let's talk about what as a good team in terms of co-founders. So what I like to see is diversity because you're not building a product for yourself. So you need to be surrounded with people who are different in terms of your experiences and views, but also, of course, in terms of skills, right? There's no point, I think, to have three engineers to be co-founders, but let's see what you think. But also then following up on this, once you put that team together that you want to back, how do you work with your startups? It sounds like you're quite active. You are subscribing to the theory that uh, there has to be more than just money to be provided by VC. So what specifically, what kind of examples you can share, what do you do for the teams then? So I would say diversity is important, uh, but not necessarily between the founders. I think that if you look at the founders, you want to work with a team that is probably emotionally mature and can resolve conflicts and can talk to each other and can communicate. It's a type of uh, relationship similar to marriage or, or just, I guess, typical relationship. So it's much more important on the communication skills and, and the ability. So I wouldn't disqualify three engineers because you have uh, they can speak on the same wavelength and they are deep and they can break down they can break logic down to the parts and then build it again in a different way so you can have a beautiful product they have a good experience so i, I wouldn't could disqualify i think diversity is uh, something you're going to acquire over time and as far as help uh, typically a lot of the help has to do with what they don't have so let's say that they don't know how to raise money they don't know how to deal with vc they don't know all the rules of the corporate governing so those things are easy to help. You look at if you're interviewing people, some people don't necessarily have all the experience or they don't have all the methodology to choose people. Sometimes they need the encouragement to let people go. Sometimes you just need uh, they need help to create company culture. So it depends. The help is what we can offer and what they want, but it's their company. So we put everything together. We then open it, put it on the stove, and, and it takes dynamic of its own from there. And as they hire more and more people, then they create their own kind of culture and uh, dynamic and uh, collective mythology. And it's it's become fun if everything goes well. We support them with money. We support them with the boards and all the other things that needed. And uh, we give them a kiss of life, if you'd like. And that's it. You can't really help, help them. Once they reach a certain size, you can only help as much as they ask you for. I see that you are obviously working with early stage companies and with the people who are maybe potential entrepreneurs, which is also the point of this podcast overall, is to inspire the potential entrepreneurs, right? So people who maybe are working in a big bank or a big company, and they're thinking about what to do next. And potentially, because of the pandemic as well, people thought about it even more than ever before. What kind of fintech is suitable for whom? Are you talking about the stage? Or are you talking about uh, 
B2B versus B2C setup or a potential vertical? How should people go about this and try to find the right fintech or startup for their career? First, I would emphasize how important it is. And I can't stress enough how critical and important it is to find the right startup. So if you start your own company, that's a whole different story. We can talk about it. And maybe we'll even talk about it later today. But if you join another startup, first appreciate how critical it is, right? Because if you join the right startup, then you may actually change the life completely, your life, especially early stage. I mean, you look at the exits recently, all the billions of dollars each company worth, then you can imagine that there's hundreds of employees, hundreds of early stage employees are now millionaires. So they changed their life and maybe their kid's life. And this is like a, it's a life-changing event. So we'd give a minute to appreciate how important it is. That's the first thing. The second is I think it's different on what, on the position that you do, right? So if you join as a programmer or as a product guy or something that is very tailored to the company itself, you're probably in the highest risk, right? Because if you develop a product for a company that's eventually going to vanish, then everything you did will, will be just washed. There's nothing left. Whereas if you join as an HR person or as a marketing person, the experience you gain will help you for the next job. So it's not equal, right? If you are the CEO of a company, you're the founder of a company, even if the company fails, your experience and connection and maturity and access to, to just other CEOs and other investors will make you a very different person. So it's very different if you're programmers or an entrepreneur. And I think it's just not equal. So that's that. Then I would say that most likely, most people who hear this podcast don't know how to appreciate companies. There's many things to appreciate in a company, right? You want to see there's a barrier to entry, and then there is the business model, and then there is a domain expertise, and then you have the quality of the team and the, and the experience of the founders and the quality of the investors and the depth of the investors and just so many you know, competitive landscape. There's so many things that are critical to know whether the company have a chance to succeed or not that you don't have or most likely don't have. So it's important to find someone that does know. And if you have friends in the VC community, go ahead and use those friends and, and, and get to the investors of the specific company and talk to them. And if you know someone in a, a competitive company, find it. If you can find people in LinkedIn that understand this place, ask them and, and find out. Um, it's really important. And I, I, I like, there's no, I can't stress enough how important it is to take the time to learn about the company. One of the ways to do it is to, to actually spend time with the company. So it, it, if they interview many times or insist of ha having many interviews and spend the time, take the time. Don't be upset that you have many interviews. Actually go ahead and, and spend the time on it because that's going to be a pretty important. You don't have too many, too many of those like two, three years experiences in your life. At some point after the second or third startups, make sure that you give it the best shot. I would say the next thing is find out about yourself. Like we spoke before, find out what is the best position that you can flourish in, right? Because if you can go to a startup and you can assume that the founders are not as experienced in, in, in hiring people and you can convince them in anything and you can tell them, listen, I can do this, I can do that. And they will actually take you for it, but you're not right for it. Then it's going to be painful for both you and them. So find out about yourself, what is right for you, what is the job that you want, where, where do you flourish, where can you bring value, and, 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 and make sure that you convey this. I would uh, summarize it for now, because first of all, you say, look, let's consider this, because yes, this could be very lucrative, it could be a life-changing opportunity. On the other hand, 
maybe 90% of the startups don't work out. So you have to be careful. I think it's also important to realize what sort of obligations you have in life and things like this. So if you are you're operationally leveraged and you really need a salary every month, maybe this is a little bit too risky for you. Who knows? But I think the other points you've made is do your self-assessment. So mm-hmm. think about your skills. What are you good at? Where you can add value? And then do a due diligence on the company just like they do on you. And, and then when you see, okay, this may work, well, think about how is it going to go down the, in the future, few years down the line, given what I said before, maybe a 90% chance this still will not work out, even with the perfect diligence. So what you want to do is build your transferable skills. So as you said, look, if you're going to build something very narrow in a very narrow field, that this company is going to go bust. What are you going to go and do after? So it is good to be also a serial startup employee, but you need to build something transferable so you can go somewhere else and maybe next time it's going to work out and it will be life-changing, right? Yes. Be aware of it more than anything else. Just be aware of your risks and, and, and take the time to... I just see so many people that are so honored that are they're being accepted to a startup and they get so excited and they they missing a lot of the red flags and they get overly excited about a company they know nothing about in a space they they know nothing about. So take the time to learn about the space and about the company before you're blindly excited about them. Don't idealize the company too early. So which reminds me of a friend who just told me a while back is that, look, I worked with in a few startups and none of them really went anywhere. And finally, the one that is, uh, you know, going gangbusters. So it's fantastic. It's such a difference. Luckily for him, he found one, but maybe it was on the third try. So you need to, exactly. you know, keep trying. But if you do your diligence, maybe you can shorten that learning curve. Yeah, so there's a few more points of ideas that you can definitely look at. One is spend time with your boss, if he's not the founder. Spend a lot of time with your boss and then spend time with your boss, which is probably the founder, if it's a startup. And see what kind of people they are. Because you can look at, sometimes you see people and they, you can see that they're winners. There's just a good sense. If you want to spend more time with them, if they have a history of winnings, if they know how to, they, they just, they take you with them with a the charisma. They answer every question you ask with a kind of a charm and knowledge and depth. And you can see that they're smart, then you want to work there. And if they look like a confused, you know, too many parties, then maybe it's a red flag. Maybe it's a bad sign. So spend time with them. See what what you feel. See if they're if you wanna if if you wanna spend more time with them. And I think that's critical. That's actually important to spend time with them. So that's the first thing. And then someone would you bring them to your friends and and be proud of them? Or maybe there's something I don't see. But if someone else likes them, then maybe I should like them too. And it doesn't work this way. If you don't like them, nobody, other people will not like them. So that's I think that's a kind of uh, I guess let's call it some kind of an intuition is critical. There used to be a good old tip even for jobs in big corporates, say, would you like to sit next to this person for four or eight hours on a plane, right? And uh, not to be asleep. So, you know, yes. is that somebody yeah, you can be great, with? It's a great metaphor. Yes, it's a great metaphor. There's also something which called the company culture. There is culture. People adjust themselves to a culture. So if you want to spend time, go to lunch with the employees and just spend time with the rest of the people and see what the culture is. If they talk about work, if they talk about challenges, how to solve a problem, if they talk about customers, how to address a customer, that's probably a good sign. If they talk about how bad the food is or how whatever, how uh, something else which is non, not professional, then it's not a good sign. 
and just see, you know, how do they support each other? Do they respect each other? You can see it and then just spend time so you can feel the culture and, and, and pay a lot of attention to the news nuances. There's a lot of nuances. There's a lot of nuances. Every nuance, which may be a red flag, is a red flag. Check. It's not that every company is perfect and it doesn't mean you need to join a, a company that doesn't have any red flags. Just but don't lie to yourself. Look at the churn, like how many people left the company. What, how? It's not necessarily a bad thing if the company initiated those terminations. But if people are coming and leaving all the time, that's not a good sign. You can go to LinkedIn, find people who used to work for the company and call them up and see why they left. You need to be mature enough to be able to know that they're not going to be, they're not going to be the best ambassadors, but they will tell you. If, if they left the company because it just was too, too toxic, that's, a, that's not a good sign. If they say they left the company because they were not good enough, that's fair. Or they left the company because they didn't uh, have the life, work-life balance that the company required. That's a good sign. But they can tell you, listen, the guy is not is insane or the guy is capricious. And, and that's, that's something you want to... Again, nothing I'm telling you right now is, is a sign that if you, if you see it, then don't join. But take everything into consideration. Pay attention to detail. And yeah, I, always when I saw a red flag at the beginning, I thought, okay, it is maybe manageable. It never got better. <laughs> it only got worse, <laughs> I must say. Yeah, similar to the metaphor about playing, I would say it's a metaphor about, uh, you know, dating someone. Like you can, there's a lot of nuances in the dating phase in the first date that turns into a whole chasm down the road in the relationship. So yeah, pay attention to that. Look at the investors and I would absolutely encourage people to speak to the investors or at least ask to speak to the investors. Sometimes it's over, it's, it's too much. If you're going to ask your boss to speak to the investor, he will freak out because he never spoke with them. But sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's okay to ask, especially if you're like a very deep technological guy, like a data guy, and they really want you, then they're going to they're gonna go out of their way to make you meet the investors, and then you can speak to the investor. The investor will obviously be supportive, but you can listen to the number of milliseconds before he tells you that he's very supportive of the company or how much. <laughs> the investors make a huge difference on the probability of success of a company. So if a company in a fintech have uh, Mickey Malka, for example, or Oren Zaev, or one of the kind of celebrities, then just having them as an investor changes the odds of the company to succeed and changes the valuation of the next round. And so it's a major filter. In other words, if you need, if you need for validation, then who is the investor is a pretty important validation. And there's some kind of hierarchy over there, and you want to you learn all the rules and if you, have, if you have time and you understand the dynamic, if you have the dynamics, then you want to find out what is the stage of the fund? Is it early? How much, how's the, the other portfolio is doing? If they're going to, if their interest is going to be aligned or not. There's a lot to learn about, a lot to learn about uh, corporate governing. I do want to talk about a little bit about the idea itself. And obviously, if you go and join a startup, you're not going to be as professional as the people who work in the company. But I have a few tips about the idea. It doesn't need to be sexy. So the more complex the space is and the more complex the, the, the more knowledgeable you need to know to be able to provide a solution for this industry, the better it is because that's a barrier to entry. So that's actually, it's a good thing. If it's a consumer product, then it's a whole very different risk. But if it's like a, in a B2B and you solve a very deep problem that you never heard of, that's probably a good sign. I would really try to spend time on the business model, the unit economics. So what I found over time is like, when you said before that people just trust the serial entrepreneur and they trust him to do whatever he wants, it's not always the case. And even then, 
if you want to break it down, what does it mean, a serial entrepreneur, a good guy who will do whatever it takes? Because he's going to break it down. And one of the things you need to figure out is the business model. And, and it makes a huge difference, right? So an example, okay, if you join a company and it's like an Uber thing, so the winner takes it all. You, have, you don't have room for too many players. Like by now, anyone else who tried to do the same thing as Uber is already dead and gone and never, his name will never be mentioned again. It's because just, and there were probably dozens and dozens of those companies who tried to do the thing with Uber. And almost every city have a different player and you have like one or two players. You don't have 15 in every city. Sure. Just because it's very expensive to gain the, to get the customer acquisition. So I would look at the business model, look at the, how much I'm willing to pay. The next thing I would do, and I absolutely do it, is join a sales call or join a customer call. If you can. So, so uh, yeah, spend time with customers. See that. The, so I would say the biggest indicator is that you, you can actually see a customer saying he's willing to pay for the product either now or when it's ready. So there's indication that you're working for an inventory. So you're not inventing a, a product. And the product is later on on the shelf and maybe someone will use it and some, maybe not. Those days are over. When you build a product, you want to make sure that there's someone who's actually going to pay for it. Now, and this is a really important point. If you just do something for a little bit cyber, look at cyber. Unless there's a company who say, listen, this is a, a weakness we need to solve. And if you have it, we will use it. Then it's really whiskey. Okay. If you look at the fintech or payment, then you want to make sure that there's Companies who, who would pay for it, even if they pay for someone else to do the same thing, it's okay. But you can see that the, mar- the, the solution of a, a market. Well, great stuff. All the cool ideas, how to do a diligence on a company if you want to join a startup or fintech in particular. We started with the motivation, which is potentially this could be life-changing for you. So if you want to double down on this and you focus on payments and e-commerce, what do you think are the three hottest trends in your verticals that you're the most fascinated by that you think would potentially lead to life-changing wealth? Thank you for the question, because I really like, this is like the, I I have so much passion for it. The first thing I would do, and I think it's really relevant for many of the audience here. So it doesn't matter if you work for a large organization, if you have a, if you have skill that you acquired over time, the biggest paradigm shift I see today is people going for solo entrepreneurs. And uh, you look at what Fiverr is providing and people can do all the little, they can do like birthday presents or they can do traffic, natural traffic creation, or they can design logos or they can, there's just so many things people can do. And so as Fiverr is one example, and then you look at the creator economy. So you look at the YouTube influencers and you look at TikTok celebrities who give advice on marriage and on whatever partnerships. And you have, I study on the TikTok, I study anatomy. So a lot of doctors that shows anatomy and pathology. There's so many of them and they all make money. I think so. The solo entrepreneur thing is just, that's a huge paradigm shift. It's almost when I grew up, if you want to start your life, you go and you do waitering. And I was doing moving. So I was a mover for a year to save money for college. And then I was studying engineering. But why, right? Why don't I, why can't I spend my real talent and, and not do I need to go to do wait, be a waiter. And so I think many people can now, even early in their career, can do something online. I, I will mention that if you look at Amazon, Amazon have Amazon stores, right? So you can anyone can design a product and be creative and uh, sell it on Amazon and, and or Shopify and make money. And, and you have millions of them. So most of them are not going to make money, but you have hundreds of thousands of, of, of sellers who are just few people at home who, who took the time to learn all the rules and, and they changed everything. And now there's an industry of companies who buy 
those stores. So if you have an Amazon store and you manage to get your kind of brand and you manage to get your, like, your niche and you can do uh, like chime bells for dogs, whatever, and you get a critical volume, then someone's going to buy you. And that's a life-changing event just there before you even go to a VC. So I would say that the biggest trend I see right now is entrepreneurs. I would say that, again, from fintech and payment, I think that the companies who provide services for those solo entrepreneurs are on the rise in a huge way. So if you give them funding or insurance or you give them a place to optimize acquisition or to challenge us, channel themselves or to edit the, the videos or to have data about competition in the, in the, in the merchants, there's just so many examples of help that those merchants need. And that's a massive trend. It's beautiful. It's really democratization of labor almost. So it's the way I see it is also, let's say that you have 10 skills. And instead of being hired by one employer, that's sometimes maybe too difficult to find a match. You split your skills into different gigs, right? So yes, you can do this and these things on Fiverr, but you can do other things online or in person and you put it together, right? So from different sources of income. We talked on this, on this podcast a lot about gig economy, for example, in Africa as well, where a lot of people are in unofficial economy and it's all about gigs, right? So how do you help them to sometimes whether the seasonality uh, in their income or, as you said, all kinds of other services, insurance and uh, support tools uh, related to Internet, which which target uh, solo entrepreneurs. So this is all great to hear. Now, what does that mean for you at Teammate? What are you working on now? So when we do Teammate, we, we work with, we, we identify people that we think we want to work with and find with them niches instead of looking at a package of here's entrepreneurs and here are people and here's an idea, we, we work with them, we give them salary, we sit with them, we work with them, we, we research with them, we spend a lot of resources with them to find ideas that they can relate to. And we think that, they, that it has a merit and a potential. It typically goes together, right? Because if we don't think there's a potential, they don't like it either. Yeah, and then we kick off a company. That's what we do day in, day out. Just uh, so we look at the, the payments and the infrastructure that is required around EV, especially EV in, in, in big uh, houses, with, uh, like you have many apartments, apartment buildings or commercial buildings. We look at supply chain, which is really broken now. And where can you help in supply chain around e-commerce to improve the transparency and the certainty of how much it's going to cost to bring this product into the final destination and the date. So if you can know that right now, there's so many happening and so much surprises on the way. That you can't really once you buy the product in China or in Vietnam, just it's so chaotic of what's going to be the customs, how they're going to qualify it, uh, how long it's going to be in Long Beach, will the truck bring it, like when it's going to be in Amazon or where it's going to be in that uh, fulfillment center. There's so many uncertainties, and we try to give certainty there. So there's a lot of potential over there. We look at the insurance, insure tech. We look at, at the supply chain, sorry, inventory finance. So if you sell online, then it's by definition international. So now go find someone who's going to give you money. So you go to your local bank and you say to your local bank, I have an Amazon store and I need money to buy inventory. It's going to take six months before I'm going to see the money back. The bank have no tools to assess the risk because the biggest risk you have on Amazon is that Amazon will shut you down. An Amazon shutdown company, it's a robot who look at certain rules and decides which company to, which store to shut down. And then you have to beg for mercy. So uh, the banks cannot assess that. So fin financing, financing for online e-commerce is also very interesting. So many exciting opportunities to follow up on. So 
Thanks so much you for talking to us. What's the best way to reach out and who would you like to hear from most? So we're obviously looking for founders. We're looking for uh, people who wants to join one of our companies globally. So it's international. I guess LinkedIn, Yuval Tal on LinkedIn is the best way to reach out. And teammate is a T-E-A-M and the number eight. Also have, you can reach out to us. And uh, maybe the last line, I would encourage people who work in, in big institution now and think about it or dream about being an entrepreneur, give it a chance. Give it a chance to explore whether it's for you, whether you can relate, whether you're willing to pay the price, but give it a chance. Don't, don't waste time in a job you don't like. Great stuff. Thanks so much, Yuval, and uh, good luck to teammate. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.